With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. At first glance, the term expressive individualism seems benign enough. After all, people throughout the Western world value their personal freedom and the liberty to make crucial life decisions, such as whether to have children and how and when they wish to die. What could possibly be wrong with the idea that everyone should be in control of his or her own body and fate to the greatest extent possible and with the least intrusion by either the state or outdated social mores? But there is a dark side to expressive individualism when one enters the realm of public bioethics. In his 2020 book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics, Old Carter Sneed defines for us what the term public bioethics encompasses and provides a much-needed genealogy of the field. He profiles key players in many of the most momentous bioethics-related developments of the post-World War II era, from physicians such as Henry Knowles Beecher to jurists like Harry Blackman and influential scholars in such fields as philosophy and sociology, like Alistair McIntyre, Charles Taylor, and Robert Bella. Sneed chronicles how the field of bioethics came to be shaped by shocking revelations of cases of inhumanity, many of which are well known, such as the infamous Tuskegee syphilis study, but many of which are rarely discussed, such as medical experiments performed on near-term alive aborted babies. Such cases shocked the public and led to legislation creating commissions and other bodies designed to prevent such horrors. But Sneed argues that much of the action of, on the public, hol- public, public policy front failed for multiple reasons and left vulnerable groups, e.g. the aged, the cognitive, cognitively disabled, the unborn, outside a legal regime built upon the precepts of expressive individualism. And even those who were supposedly able to express their wishes were often harmed by the expressive individualism paradigm and its legal framework. Sneed gives us the example of the many actors in the area of assisted reproduction and assisted suicide whose rights can be trampled on in the name of a notion of personal liberty that, not as, that does not account for changes of mind. He also demonstrates that regulation oversight was, for often, often for all intents and purposes, absent in many cases. Sneed's book is a clarion call for what he calls remembering the body. This is an important book for anyone who may at some point become ill or disabled or who will end up caring for someone who is. That is, it is a book for everyone. It is by a leading scholarship, but its its readership is anyone with a body and who loves other people or at least has some control over them. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I am talking today with O. Cutter Sneed, the author of the 2020 book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. Thank you for joining us today, Carter. It's great to join you, Hope. Thanks for inviting me. I am pleased to have you here. 
Your book is getting quite a lot of attention, and I must say that many of the big names in many fields, such as law, philosophy, and medicine, are mentioned in the acknowledgments, including the co-recipient of this year's Nobel Prize in Chemistry, Jennifer Doudna, the noted scholars Frank Francis Beckwith, Marianne Glennon, Robert P. George, Leon Cass, and so on. Pretty pretty impressive lineup, I must say. Well done. Thanks. I'd like yeah, you must be proud. Congratulations. It's quite the book. Yeah. I'd like to start out by walking walking working through some of the phrases in the title of your book. Let's start with public bioethics. Why, for instance, the word public? Isn't all bioethics ultimately a matter for public concern? Could you tell us about the difference between public bioethics, say, and clinical bioethics? Absolutely. So bioethics, unqualified, the word bioethics refers to an intellectual field of inquiry. It's a discourse and research and reflection on uh, the ethical questions that arise from advancements in biotechnology, uh, medical practice, and and so on, and, and human subjects research. So uh, clinical medical ethics refers to sort of the interaction between doctors and patients or human subjects researchers and their subjects uh, and the ethical questions that arise in that sort of person-to-person context in the course of medical treatment or in the course of scientific research. Public bioethics, on the other hand, is when these questions enter into the field of governance, that is, I define public bioethics as the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology in the name of ethical goods. This is the work of the political branches of government, the U.S. Congress, state legislatures, states attorneys general, uh, the, the, the office of the, of the United States presidency, uh, as well as the, the judicial branch. So the U.S. Supreme Court or the state, uh, state courts themselves, along with a host of administrative agencies at the, at the federal and state level. So public bioethics is a species of law and public policy that concerns the ethical governance of these particular areas of, of activity. I noticed you made a distinction or a, uh, between medical ethics and clinical ethics. Is medical ethics not used as much as a term these days? So clinic, so medical ethics, I think, is more general. Uh, clinical, clinical medical ethics or clinical ethics or clinical bioethics, the word clinical refers to the clinical context, whether that is the delivery of healthcare or the conduct of medical research. So clinical medical ethics relates primarily to informed consent, the selection of subjects, IRBs, which are called institutional review boards. There's a whole uh, federal apparatus that governs uh, the research uh, involving human subjects that is directly funded by the federal government, but also that occurs at institutions that receive any federal funding at all. This is so experts in clinical medical ethics are those that focus on the sort of doctor patient or researcher subject relationship and the issues that arise in that context. Okay, that's very helpful. Now, a big part of your book is the case for the body. And surely the entire field of bioethics is founded on the matter of the body, whether that's, as you mentioned, some of the fields, medical experimentation, rules governing clinical trials, matters of assisted reproduction, end-of-life issues. They all revolve around the body. Is that not so? What case? What, what is distinctive about your case for the body? Yeah. So what I argue for in the book is, first of all, the, the, um, a methodological argument. That is to say, the richest way to understand any area of law, but especially the area of law that is that I'm describing as public bioethics, is to ask the question of what vision of the person is animating and anchoring the legal or policy framework. Because all law and public policy hope aims to protect persons or to promote the flourishing of persons. And as a result, there has to be 
uh, an, uh, a prior conception, a premise about what a person is and what human flourishing is. And the, the reason I'm making the case for the body is because I believe that the anthropology, that is the, the account of human identity and human flourishing uh, that undergirds the law and policy in these vital conflicts of abortion, assisted reproduction, and end-of-life decision-making, that that anthropology uh, doesn't take into account our embodiment as essential to, to our individual and shared lives as persons. So I'm making the case for the body as part of the integral vision of what it means to be a person. Well, when it comes to the matter of the body, uh, many feminists are not are, are not only concerned with the body, but they're almost obsessed with it. For example, some of the titles of the their book, their the text, the, you know, the uber text of modern feminism are are, are is our body ourselves and the, our, and the second sex by Simone de Beauvoir, and as deeply creepy as Judith Jarvis Thompson's famous nineteen seventy one essay, Defense of Abortion, is. It is, it is deeply focused, weird analogies on all in the matter of a woman's body and the fetus. And aren't these feminist theories remembering the body? They're just remembering it in a different way than you are. Yeah, I think, I think I cer- there's certainly, it's important historically and substantively to focus on women's bodies as an object of control and manipulation. It's for sure the case that, that we have uh, an, an ugly history of the subjugation of women uh, under a variety of some would describe as patriarchal norms or mores, and the law has certainly played a role in this regard. And it's understandable that there was a kind of backlash in reaction to this uh, history that focused in some ways single-mindedly on the control of the body and, and the good of autonomy and self-determination with respect to the control of one's body. I think that that's important. I think that that's, that's certainly uh, on its face, an understandable reaction. In my book, I make uh, the argument uh, that focusing on autonomy and self-determination, while is an important aspect of human personhood and human flourishing, is not the only aspect of human personhood and human flourishing. In fact, our embeddedness in a web of relationships, chosen and unchosen, have meaning for our personhood. And if you construct the law on a on a on a on a an image of personhood that single-mindedly focuses on autonomy and self-determination, you end up losing the capacity to even see entire populations of vulnerable individuals, the disabled, the elderly, and children, including unborn children, in my account, uh, that uh, makes the law uh, insufficiently protective of those vulnerable populations. So I, I wouldn't certainly quarrel with the historical or substantive focus on the body and the control of the body that different phases of feminists have have, have embraced, I would simply argue that there's more to the picture and to try to augment uh, that conception of human flourishing uh, and you know, to add to uh, add to goods that are uh, alongside and supplement the goods of autonomy and self-determination. Well, on the question of the term human flourishing, where exactly does that come from? Is it a Catholic concept or is it just a general philosophical concept? Is there a particular thinker that was, that, what are its origins as yeah, a term? So the, the term human flourishing, I think, is a general expression referring to what it means to thrive as a human being. Human flourishing, I think, presupposes that there are goods, intelligible goods, that are associated with human beings and their lives that we should strive towards. It's not exclusively Catholic, for sure. The person, the thinker that I think is, at least in my experience, when I first became introduced to the to the expression, it was used by Leon Cass, uh, who is not a Catholic, for sure. He's a he's hmm. a, by background, he's a 
Jewish, uh, but he's a man trained in the sciences. He's a PhD in molecular biology from Harvard, an MD from the University of Chicago, but for decades and decades taught in the humanities. And I think if you were to try to situate Leon's thinking uh, in terms of the, you know, the, the history of Western thought, he probably uh, looks more like an Aristotelian than, than a, a Christian or a Jew uh, in terms of his vision of, of, of identity and flourishing. But human flourishing is an expression we used a lot back when I was general counsel to President Bush's Council on Bioethics, uh, and that was a reflection of our chairman, Dr. Leon Cass. Hmm. Does it notice? Does it connote a certain religiosity, though, that some people might not be comfortable with, or is it just? A, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think human flourishing does not, in any sense, imply religious commitments or the commitment to the notion of uh, a transcendent being. I think human flourishing just means what it means to to be to be successful and happy as a human being. I mean, I you can you can see it's hard to even talk about because I already I, I just smuggled the word happy into my. Uh, for, for human flourishing. I mean, and that's probably Aristotelian. Like, so what, what, what is it that human beings, what is it, what is it uh, that causes, that gives value both to the experience and to the overall assessment of what it means to be a human being? What is human thriving? What is, and this is, I mean, this bedevils not just, you know, general thinking about what it means to be human, but it's, it's a specific question in, in the practice of medicine, right? I mean, the, the, the question of, what is the goal of medicine? The answer is going to be, well, it's to restore uh, human health or to minister to human health. And that opens the question that invites the question, well, what constitutes health? And now we're off to the races, whether health has natural ends uh, or whether health is merely a subjective state that is determined by the person, him or herself. Um, that in some ways gets opens the door to the question about anthropology, whether expressive individualism is the right way to see ourselves and our and what we owe to each other versus some other anthropological set of commitments. But I think human flourishing, you know, the, the, the most controversial thing a person might say about human flourishing is that it implies a kind of teleology, right? It implies a set of purposes or ends that are objective and outside the human subject. Um, but that need not be the case either, though. You could say human flourishing is defined as uh, you know, by whatever whatever the human individual subject regards as flourishing in his or her case. So, I think flourishing is a pretty neutral term. Okay. Well, one of the ter- one of the terms when you were discussing women and the the idea of not of not saying that the individual autonomy is always the key the key consideration. One of the terms that you use is unchosen obligations, and in that case, a woman might feel that well, I've got this. I don't think of it as a baby. I feel as 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 in that case, you might say this is an unchosen obligation that I don't want. And your point, your argument is, well, as a as a human being, there is a human being inside you. Could you discuss there and, and how how a woman who desperately wants an abortion and doesn't has, sure. doesn't want this child regard this as an unchosen obligation that I want to be rid of as quickly as possible? Sure. So let me back up a second. I I think when I use the phrase unchosen obligation, I'm referring to. Um, so, I mean, I build that, that concept grows out of, um, what it means to stand in relation to one another and what that has to do with our own identity and our own flourishing. So I argue that because all human beings are embodied because all human beings, and it's inarguable that we live and die and get sick and experience ourselves and one another as living bodies, uh, because of that, there are certain entailments that follow from our embodiment, namely our vulnerability, our mutual dependence, and our subjection 
to natural limits. And because we're embodied, uh, I argue in the book that there are certain kinds of um, uh, certain kinds of conditions that have to obtain both for our survival because of our dependence and our natural limits and so on, but also for our flourishing. Um, and those and what's required for that are what Alistair McIntyre describes as networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. That is networks of people who make are, are willing to make the good of another person their own good without any hope of, of return or benefit to themselves. And we see that in the most pristine example of that is the relationship between parent and child. Parents don't ca- take care of their children because they uh, have a contract to take care of their children. They don't take care of their children because they have uh, expect something to get back and re- something in return for taking care of their children. They take care of their children because that's what it means to be a parent. And a child, by co- uh, you know, conversely, doesn't have to earn the the right to be cared for by his or her parent. It's simply owed to that child. That child has the privilege of being cared for. Uh, simply by virtue of the fact that, that child stands in the relationship of child uh, parent to child or child to parent. And so what I argue in the book about the more controversial context of, of abortion is that the, there is, as a biological matter, as a matter of embodiment, the relationship between unborn child and her mother, or fetus if you prefer, and her mother, is the relationship of parent and child. And with the relationship of parent and child, there are certain kinds of Un, unchosen obligations and unclaimed privileges, but it's not simply or un, un, unearned privileges, but it's not simply a matter of putting all the uh, responsibility on the woman who is, finds herself in crisis. Those relationships, the, her status as a mother and relationship to the child isn't merely, isn't, doesn't merely have implications for her. It has implications for all of us. That is because we all exist in these webs of, uh, of uncalculated giving and, and graceful receiving when a woman is faced with a situation like that, it's a summons to all of us to render care and assistance, obviously radiating outward from the people closest to her, the father of the child, her family, their community, uh, and so forth, uh, to you and me. But it also extends to our nation and our, and our, and our government. That is, if, there is no, if there's no uh, aid forthcoming from these private sources of assistance, the government, the government's role, even from a libertarian perspective, is to protect people from private violence and to provide for their flourishing. And so, um, and so, and there are different ways to do that. Of course, you can make space for private ordering. You can incentivize things, you know, indirectly, or you can provide direct care. I mean, there's a whole. The book doesn't really take a position on what the appropriate government structures are or the appropriate legal doctrines are in this respect. It basically stays at the level of purposes and ends. But the argument I would make to a woman who's who is um, there's a kind of biological reality of the relationship between mother and child that has certain kinds of implications for it. And as much as we would understand the desire to, to, to erase that burden by eliminating the life of the unborn child, my argument is that that's not a fitting response given who we are and what we owe to each other. But that doesn't leave the woman alone in her crisis. That comes to her aid and everything we can do short of eliminating the life of the child who she regards as a burden, uh, we should do. Yes, I was just going to say that it's interesting you make the point that your book is neither conservative nor libertarian nor liberal in that, for example, you were saying that you, if gov- gov- the government might play a, a large role in this because historically when women, a single mother is a, a, on her own and it's an economic burden, if you, you say, well, Will will assist you as to a greater extent than maybe maybe some you know tax 
paying minded people would say, well, she got herself in its own position. But how do you address that issue with you're reaching out to everyone to say, let's create a humane network where it's, it's, she's not on her own. She's not thrust out into the the economic darkness and poverty and so forth. Yeah, that's exactly right. My, my position is that the law, um, and if you look at the, and I'm sure we'll get into this, if you look to the jurisprudence of abortion, and the philosophical uh, discourse that uh, upon which it rests, even if in an unstated way, it the expressive individualism atomizes. That is, that is isolates each individual in their in their in their as as and, and perceives of them uh, independent of any kind of relationship or embeddedness or connection they have to others. So the way the abortion rights philosophical discourse. And for that matter, implicitly, the jurisprudence of abortion in the United States, it regards the circumstance of unwanted pregnancy as a clash of atomized strangers, right? Mm. And this is, and you mentioned Judith Jarvis Thompson a few moments ago, who I understand just passed away uh, recently, um, uh, that uh, that her sort of metaphor, or sorry, analogy rather, for, um, for what pregnancy is, at least in certain circumstances, is the conscription of a woman's body by an alien intruder that she did not invite in and possibly and, and is unable to exercise self-help to expel by restrictive abortion laws. But that anyone who's been pregnant or who has been uh, the beneficiary of a pregnancy, and that covers everyone, uh, understands that that's not that's an unrecognizable description of, 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 of the phenomenon of human pregnancy. Human pregnancy is, a, first of all, a relationship. It's a parental relationship. And we, could, we can deny that. But as a biological matter, as a matter of embodiment, that is, I think, the most accurate way to describe what we're talking about. And my argument is that relationships have consequences. Relationships entail certain kinds of uh, obligations and also entail certain kinds of privileges. And there are privileges of a woman who is uh, facing an unplanned pregnancy. Her privilege is to be aided and supported by those around her. And as I say, a libertarian might uh, could 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 agree with that. I think, insofar as the mechanism of support is private ordering. Again, I don't take a position on that in the book, but I do take the position that if there's no private ordering that will care for a, a person, our obligation is to use our collective authority uh, in in the form of a representative government to come forward and to provide that aid, because that's what it means to be human being, to care for others, to make the good of another our own good is what I ultimately describe in the book as human flourishing. And another more sort of basic way to describe that is, is that human beings are made by virtue of their embodiment for love and friendship. And that's what I argue uh, is human flourishing. That's another another word I'd like to ask about. I've noticed that in some of the writings of natural law, the, the idea of friendship and you, you, could you define how it's examples in the book of, of, of the friendship? I'm, 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 I'm kind of, if you can, t- as you can see, I'm sort of groping to understand how, how that, how that is, how that wor- is wor- works in the real world. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think the, the most, the thing that is most influential on me, and I think the truest thing that's been written about friendship in the Western canon is Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, and he talks about different kinds of friendship, but the the, the but the, the the genuine friendship, the friendship between the virtuous, is the friendship in which he call, uh, one makes the good of another his or her own. Right? You make the good of a, it, it, the other is basically a, another self. Right? You think about the other person's good in the same way that you think about your own good. You aim for their good. You aim to bring and and that and there are certain virtues that are associated with that. The virtues of 
of um, just generosity and hospitality and misericordia, which is accompanying others in their suffering. There's also uh, virtues of gratitude and solidarity and honesty and openness to the unbidden, tolerance of imperfection. These are all virtues that I believe are appropriately understood through the lens of friendship, not in its sort of minimalist sense of someone that you have an affinity for, but rather someone who you genuinely make and they make your good uh, their own good without hope or expectation of getting anything in return other than simply the good of the friend. Well, you read in the book of the the law, I'm just trying to, to establish in my mind, my own mind, the idea of how you write, how you legislate compassion. I mean, you write in the book about the moral imagination, but is that really the duty of the law to yeah, tutor? Sorry, I'm interrupting. Please go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say in terms of, of how, how, isn't it, isn't it a form of sort of emotional shaming to say that you must be a caring and loving person because not everyone is. Yeah. And, no, and I think the law, I think so. I would take a step back and I would say the law is extraordinarily fine grained and broad in the mechanisms that it has. It's not merely um, injunction. It's not merely prohibition. It's not merely coercion, right? The law, ha- the law can shape, first of all, the law shapes behavior through, uh, I mean, at the most extraordinary end of the spectrum is criminal pro- prohibition. That's the most restrictive and coercive end. But at the other end, you have you have positive inducement. You have things like, I mean, to make it concrete, things like federal funding. There are plenty of things that we think are virtuous. We give tax credits to people who give to charity. Uh, we give, uh, we give, uh, you know, we give federal funding for different kinds of nonprofit activities. We we privilege nonprofit activities. There are all kinds of ways the government can prioritize, privilege, and promote without any restrictions, good behaviors. And then between that affirmative promotion and criminal prohibition, there's an enormous array of fine-grained opportunities for the law to speak or to shape behavior and to reflect the goods that a particular society cares about. And that includes, in our society, in our, our civilization, a huge amount of that is simply getting out of the way, right? Giving space for private ordering, allowing people through free associations to create these networks of uncalculated giving and, and graceful receiving. In my judgment, and I tend to be more on the non-interventionist side in my own personal political views. And so I would say that it's only in those cases where a human being is going to, where there's simply no help forthcoming from these private networks, nonprofits and private ordering to where the government has to step in and to protect someone either from private violence from another person that's obvious. Even a libertarian would recognize that fundamental role of government to protect private people from other private people trying to hurt them in some unjust way, to providing the basic you know, social safety network to allow to prevent people from starving to death or 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 uh, or, or or withering in some other way. Well, ap- apropos of creating the framework, you talk about you use the term the anthropology, and you talk about a corrective anthropology. Could you discuss the term how you use the term anthropology in the book, as well as inductive anthropological analysis, which is the the method that you use in the book? Correct. Absolutely. So, anthropology, obviously, its modern connotation is a specific field of academic discipline. It's an, an academic discipline. You, when people think in the, in the modern sense, I think of Margaret Mead going to faraway islands. <laughs> reporting on the habits and behaviors of, 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 of foreign peoples. Um, that's not what I mean. What I mean by anthropology is quite literal. I mean, it is an account of what it means to be human. And, um, and, and I mean it in the sense that Catholic novelist Walker Percy meant it when he said in a, an essay, 
uh, of his reviewing uh, Canticle for Leibowitz, a short, very interesting book on science fiction and really bioethics. Um, he says, everyone has an anthropology and people who don't have an anthropology or who say they don't simply have an implicit anthropology that they're either not aware of or not willing to disclose. In order to understand, I mean, the question of who we are and, and, what, and, what our, and what constitutes our thriving or flourishing and what we owe to each other is really the oldest question that we have. The question of self, who am I and, and what am I as a human being is, is what I mean by anthropology. And, my, and by inductive anthropological analysis, what I'm saying is I think the richest way in to understanding law and public policy is to ask the question, what vision of the human person is, is driving and animating these legal doctrines? So I'm a law professor, and when I teach my students, when I have my first-year students come in, I say, all right, we're going to learn the black-letter law in this class. We're going to learn the elements of each of each claim. And te- I te- I'm teaching torts this semester, right? So he said, we're going to learn the elements of the intentional tort of battery. We're going to learn the elements of negligence. We're going to er- learn the elements of product liability. We're going to learn the legal doctrine and how it works. But but that's that's just being a technician. Being a genuine lawyer, being a, a professional means you have to dig more deeply and to ask the question, what is the law for? What is the purpose of this law? Is the, what are the goods the law aims to promote? What are the harms that the law aims to avoid? What are the principles of justice, the conceptions of freedom, the conceptions of equality at work that help us to make these, this doctrine intelligible? What is, the, what is all this technical doctrine supposed to be for? So we can then take a step back and ask the question, is the doctrine well designed to advance the purposes that it was, that it was enacted for? But what I propose in the book is to go a level even deeper still, a normative level deeper still and say, okay, since all law exists to promote the flourishing of persons and all law exists for the protection of persons, otherwise law is arbitrary and capricious. The whole point of law is to promote the flourishing of persons and to protect them, right? To define relationships between persons and one another, private persons, that's private law. Oh, in public law, the relationship between government and persons, as well as relationship with different branches of government and one another, other branches of government, we have, we have to dig deeply to ask, okay, if the law is for persons, what does the law assume a person to be? And that is, and so what I, and it's inductive, my analysis, because what I do is I go out and I look at the law and policy of abortion in America. I look at the law and policy relating to assisted reproductive technologies. And I look at the law and policy connected to end-of-life decision-making, including assisted suicide. And I ask the, the inductive question, that is, I take the law as I find it, it's inductive. I look at the facts as they exist, and I say, all right, let's 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 look at the law and drill down and, and figure out and unpack what vision of the person is doing all of the work here. And that is what I mean by inductive anthropological analysis. And what I find in doing so, and we, I'm sure we'll talk about this, is that the anthropology that underlies these particular vital conflicts of American public bioethics is woefully inadequate. It doesn't capture the full truth about what it means to be a human being. And it requires what I describe as an anthropological corrective, an augmentation of the vision of the human person that operates in the law as it currently stands, uh, hopefully with the goal of bringing about a more just, humane, and wise legal regime in all three of these areas. Well, that's a wonderful segue to another important uh, bulwark of your book, and that is your discussion of expressive individualism. And I'd like to, before you before you tackle that, I'd like to mention that, uh, interestingly, a book just came out, which is very much tied, which was wonderful background, I should say, to your, to your own book. And that is uh, the book by Carl Truman, 
the, the, the rise and triumph of the modern self, cultural amnesia, expressive individualism, and the road to social sexual revolution. And that's a wonderful backgrounder of a big book, but it, it's really wonderful to read in, in, in connection with your book because you, you, he talks about what expressive individualism and then is, and then your book talks about, and this is what it's doing to human beings. It's, they're really read together. They're excellent. They're both superb books. But I just wanted to, to mention that. Um, could you discuss expressive individualism and, and, and the role it plays in everything that affects the body <laughs> at this point? I, I guess I, I, it, that, that's the impression I got from your book, that it just forms jurisprudence. It forms the way we interact with one another, the way we're, we're selfish, the way we're narcissistic, the way we can be artistic and creative. But it also is a very is a, 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 a form of belief that seems to be what I want is what's great. Yeah, and no. As Robert likes to say, it whatever whatever feels good, do it. Yeah, and, and I, just, I Carl Carl Truman's book is wonderful. Um, I was so excited when I saw it, uh, and I was so struck by because I don't know Carl. I didn't know Carl. I know him now. Uh, I said I saw his book. I saw. I mean, it really draws upon a lot of the same sources: Charles Taylor, Alistair McIntyre, Rousseau, uh, and others. I mean, it gives us the same genealogy intellectual genealogy of expressive individualism. And I was so thrilled to see his book come out. I sent him an email. I said, Carl, you know, we've never met. We know we have friends in common, but, you know, I've written this book too. And, and we just, and immediately we hit it off and he, he just, he sent me a copy of his book. Uh, and I've, I've about a hundred pages into it. Uh, and it, you're right. I mean, it's a fantastic companion. What I do in my book for public bioethics, he does for the sexual revolution. And, um, and it's very, very good to read these two books together, I think. Um, so in any event, um, expressive individualism is an anthropology. Uh, the term expressive individualism was coined by Robert Bella, who was an American sociologist who wrote the classic Habits of the Heart, which the title of which, by the way, is taken from Tocqueville, um, who did an extraordinary kind of, was a kind of social scientist himself, traveling in America, writing about his observations of American life and the American character and the American conception of oneself. Um, and what, what uh, Bella did is he interviewed hundreds of people in the 1980s to find out what Americans thought about themselves in terms of what their self-understanding was, how they thought of themselves and how they thought of their own flourishing, or how they thought about what their lives, you know, what, what the meaning of their lives were and how to pursue their destinies and how to, how to, how to find meaning in their lives. And what he found was something that disturbed him quite a lot. He found that people, first of all, thought of themselves uh, in the fundamental re personal reality uh, was that they were <clears throat> atomized individuals, that is, isolated individuals. They didn't think about themselves, their fundamental identity, in connection with any role that they played in their embedded web of relationships and their families. They didn't think of, and Carl in his book talks about how kind of unintelligible this would be to people from prior generations where people really define themselves according to their role in society. You know, I'm a blacksmith. I'm a father. I'm a scholar. You know, these are, this is what, I mean, I, and, and, and what um, Bella notices is that in the 20th century, in the second half of the 20th century, there emerges a new sort of self-understanding that is individualistic. Now, individualism is not new. That's something that has existed for millennia. Uh, in fact, he talks about the founding generation Hobbes, Locke, and others who thought, and Adam Smith, 
who who had who embraced what he describes as utilitarian individualism. You still regard the fundamental social unit as the individual person, um, but the flourishing of that person is oriented towards that the, that person pursuing his own sort of self-centered individual ends exists in a well-regulated system and a community that it ultimately contributes to the common good, contributes to the, the maximization of, of, of goods in a given, in a given community. You call that utilitarian individualism. But what Bella found in the latter half of the 20th century is that people thought about their, their individual identity as defined First of all, uh, you know, as themselves as disembedded or separate and apart from any relationships they might have, but they define their flourishing as the sort of interior examination of their own, you know, their their own will, their own desires to f- to come up with what was their own distinctive, authentic truths, their own originalism, the originality, and to to chart their own destiny. To first of all, express their originality, and then to chart their own destiny according to what. Um, best serves the goods that they discern internally, not with and without respect entirely to their relationships with other people, their their social roles that they have. That they and there's one woman in the book uh, that is, her name is Sheila, and Bellas describes her really spiritual orientation as Sheilaism. Right? It's it is what <laughs> it's, it's it's it her 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 highest flourishing her destiny is to interrogate the interior of herself, to find her original truth, to express that truth, and then to pursue it. And everything else around her, everything else around the, the expressive individual is regarded as instrumental to pursuing that, that, that truth that comes from inside. And that includes human relationships. Relationships are viewed through this lens of, of self-satisfaction, of uh, you know, the, expre- the, 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 the pursuit of one's own interior, uh, self-invented destiny, uh, the the natural world is a na- is is an instrument to that, and, and the human body itself is an instrument to that to that to that goal. Um, and and so and it's interesting if you go back in in the history of ideas, you find and Charles Taylor, who is a Catholic philosopher, teaches at McGill, uh, Templeton Prize winner, um, you know, deepens and explores this concept of expressive individualism in his own writing, and traces the idea of expressive individualism back to Rousseau, who came up with this notion of uh, the, 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 the inner voice, uh, the inner voice as being definitive and decisive of, of what a person should do, how they should configure their lives and how they should be free and to, and how they should, how, and what they should pursue. Right. I mean, Rousseau famously said that man is born free, but is everywhere in chains. Rousseau thought the fundamental definitive source of of, 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 of one's conception of the good and, w- and what one's life is for comes from inside. And the exterior sources of authority, the community, uh, family, the nation, all of that is are potentially confounding uh, uh, influences that can take a person off course and pull a person away from what they should be doing, which is defined by this inner sense. And that is an idea that got picked up by artists and and literary figures in the 18th and 19th centuries, they call it the Romantic literary movement. Shelley, um, Byron, and others would write. Uh, they were reacting against the strictures and the linearity of 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 of, of the literary norms uh, that uh, that defined the tradition in which they emerged, and they wanted to be transgressive against those norms. They wanted to find their own 
internal truths, what Taylor calls authenticity. This notion of originality is really, really important to these romantic literary figures. Now, the one thing that bound them together, though, is they actually believed in a sort of common human nature. And, and that would that that uh, that so so that, that would ultimately unify um, their work and their and their expressions. But in the second half of the 20th century, this notion of originality and authenticity comes into the consciousness of the common person, and the common person begins to define himself according to what he discovers, the truth that he or she discovers within, the truth that he or she discovers inside the depths of the self. And, and they feel the imperative to express that originality and to live that originality. And that's what Bella was picking up on in his social science studies. That's what Taylor talks about. And the worry here, I mean, there's a lot of sort of, I mean, it's, in some ways it's very appealing, right? The idea of the rugged individual defining his or her path in the universe, irrespective of the mores of tradition or society or their relationships or their families. There's something very appealing, especially to Americans about that vision of human flourishing. But, um, oh, I was just going to say it's it's gotten kind of sort of blatherized on the and the NPR what I would call the NPR personality that I'm going to give a a ten minute interview to this person who's expressing his or her inner needs and I'm a lesbian soccer star I'm a, a you know a benighted a woman poet that needs to say what my what my vision is it's just so it's just so predictable you just get like. 20 minutes of it per day on NPR and it's just about this, this vision of myself and my need and my truth. And it doesn't seem to have anything to do with anything at all, except the person's personality. No, it's boring. Uh, it's boring. It's boring. That's exactly right. I just think, why, why, why is this person being interviewed? What accomplishments, what has this person done except talk about him herself? Yeah, no, it, it's bad manners, right? I mean, you, <laughs> yeah, exactly it's, so. it's, it's, right. it's, it's self-centered and, narcissistic. And, and Michael Sandel, you know, a philosopher, uh, political philosopher from Harvard says, you know, uh, in an in a essay called The Procedural Republic and the Unencumbered Self, he talks about this, this vision. And he, he argues that this vision of the unencumbered self undergirds the, the, the political philosophy of John Rawls, who is the most influential philosopher, political philosopher on American politics, and for sure, the most influential philosopher on modern American public bioethics. And this vision of the atomized... Rawls is is important to bioethics. I didn't realize that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He himself didn't write much about bioethics, although he did have a very worrisome footnote about abortion and persons with disabilities in in a couple of his uh, important works. But but no, what Rawls talks about is, is, um, and and is is under uh, following Sandel's critique is this sort of, I mean, his, his, conjectural beginnings of human history, if you will, is this, or, or his, his conceit or his heuristic is the idea of this, um, the, the sort of disembodied will who, uh, who is uh, behind the veil of ignorance, who is, has no constitutive relationships, right? The, the, the right is prior to the good in, uh, in, in Rawls's philosophical worldview. And Sandel points out that if there are no constitutive connections, then that's a, a world of radical isolation and loneliness. No one can know your truth really except for you. Now you can express it and they can hear it and they can kind of react to it, but only you can know your truth and only you can know your own goods and what your flourishing is. And that, that's a world in which friendship is impossible. Which actually, and, um, and, and so expressive individualism, while it is in some superficial way uh, exhilarating because it promises this kind of radical freedom, uh, ultimately it's inhuman because human beings 
uh, I argue in the book, because we, among other reasons, because we have bodies and and uh, and are vulnerable and mutually dependent, subject to natural limits, we stay, uh, our relationships, our embeddedness matter uh, to our to our flourishing as human beings. And uh, if you construct a legal regime and a political regime on the notion that we're all simply atomized individual wills whose flourishing is to define and pursue our our goods as we see them uh, coming from inside ourselves without regards to others, uh, at the very least, you're going to miss an entire population of human beings who are weak and vulnerable, who can't do the thing that expressive individualism claims is what it means to be a person. And they're invisible, frankly, as persons and therefore not subject to the protections and benefits of the law. And our obligations to those individuals are invisible to us. Well, speaking of being invisible and things that are hidden from view in that respect, I'd like to move to the subject of assisted suicide, which you discuss very movingly and in really shocking detail that that I think that that, that alone, uh, that section of your book alone, I think should get a lot of attention because it's really amazing what you reveal. It's almost journalistically shocking in that respect uh, about how assisted suicide is particularly carried out as in the state of Oregon where I live. But I think that it's important to examine, you examine in the book how it's played out in Oregon because that has international and national and international implications. And I'd like to discuss, kind of drill down to that, what was really startling when you're talking about the atomized individual. And the, one of the points that you make is that many of the people in, in assisted suicide situations in Oregon are alone. And not only that, that states that, uh, that in, implement assisted suicide laws rates of hospice use drop. So these people are, so and the hospice movement was founded so that people did not die alone, that they were surrounded by caring and loving people. And this point with assisted suicides, you also make the point that there's hardly any data about what is actually happening to these people, that they're, when they take the drug that ends their life, they're often alone. And that's a very sad picture of how we feel about each other. Could you talk, for example, about the philosopher's brief in this respect, that famous yeah, document? Absolutely. So, so I take Oregon as the paradigm, first of all, because Oregon was the first state to, to, to legalize assisted suicide. And the law of Oregon is the, is, the, is the template for every single other jurisdiction in the United States, all 10 of them or whatever the number is now, uh, that have legalized assisted suicide. So, um, so the anthropology of Oregon's assisted suicide law is the anthropology of American jurisdictions that have legalized assisted suicide. So the philosopher's brief was a brief written by some of the most famous and influential philosophers of the 20th century. Um, it, it's a brief, it's, it's what's called an amicus brief, right? So in 1996 and 97, uh, there were a Supreme Court, um, a Supreme Court uh, case, uh, two Supreme Court cases, one from Washington State, one from New York. Uh, it's Washington v. Glucksburg and Vacco v. Quill. And in both of those jurisdictions at the time, uh, assisted suicide was illegal. It has since been legalized in Washington, but not in New York. Um, it was it was illegal, and those who wished assisted suicide to be legal sued the state and claimed that there was a constitutional right to assisted suicide, much in the way that in the 1970s, the claim was successfully made in court that there is a constitutional right to abortion that therefore forbids states, the state governments or the federal government, from restricting access to abortion. Um, because that would constitute an unjust interference and unlawful interference with the exercise of that constitutional right. So in the 1990s, advocates for abortion, uh, sorry, assisted suicide thought 
that they were going to try to bring a Supreme Court case that would do for assisted suicide what Roe v. Wade did for abortion. They were going to claim that the 14th Amendment, right, ratified in 1868 uh, as part of a suite of amendments that were a reaction to the conclusion of the Civil War and a reaction to the nation's shameful history of chattel slavery to try to restore equality and freedom to those members of the human population in the United States that had been enslaved and denied the equal protection of the law and due process of law. And so the 14th Amendment has several different clauses, one of which is the due process clause, and it forbids states, the the state governments, from um, from denying or uh, from 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 depriving a person of life, liberty, or property without due process. Now, on its face, that provision simply says that the state cannot do these things to you, cannot deprive you of these goods without giving you some procedural protection, procedural safeguard, procedural framework before they work those deprivations. It doesn't say the state can't take your property. It doesn't say the state can't restrict your liberty. And it doesn't even say the state can't take your life. Uh, I mean, the capital punishment is clearly part of the fabric of the American constitutional framework and is, regardless of what one's views on the, the subject might be, it is for sure constitutional as a, as a, matter, as a, as a matter of of principle, uh, the death penalty is, is constitutional in the United States. Now, how it's ad- administered uh, raises may raise constitutional questions, but there's no question that the Constitution itself even contemplates capital punishment, okay? Um, mm-hmm. There's also a provision of the 14th Amendment called the Equal Protection Clause. It says that effectively that no person shall be deprived of the equal protection of the law. Now, in 1973, uh, abortion rights advocates successfully convinced a majority of the Supreme Court that the Due Process Clause entailed an unspoken right to privacy that uh, included a right to abortion. Uh, That was revised in 1992 in a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, in which the right to privacy gave way to a liberty interest, not privacy, but a liberty interest in obtaining an abortion that was implicit in the 14th Amendment uh, due process clause. So emboldened by those victories or those precedents, Uh, advocates for assisted suicide decided they wanted to press in court the claim that there was also an unenumerated, meaning unwritten, right um, to assisted suicide that was grounded in the same good of liberty, personal liberty, and privacy that the court articulated and defended in the abortion context in Casey and Roe. And so when a case comes before the Supreme Court, you have the parties to the claim. In this case, it was uh, a doctor named Timothy Quill, uh, who's a prominent uh, assisted suicide advocate in New York versus the state of New York. And you and have- a famous essay, It's Over Debbie, right, was the famous essay that he wrote. Yeah, exactly. He, he wrote about actually killing her, taking it upon himself as the doctor to do what he thought was humane. And he, it's a very troubling essay even now, I think. Yes, no, definitely, definitely. And so he was, he was technically- uh, the, the, the party and interest in that case versus the state of New York. And then, then there's someone named Glucksburg versus the state of Washington. Uh, but when, the, when a case comes before the U.S. Supreme Court or even uh, a, a U.S. Court of Appeals, which is the intermediate appellate court in the federal system, which hears 99% of the cases, uh, that is ultimately the last court that hears 99% of the cases in the United States in the federal system, the Supreme Court takes less than 1%. Uh, of the appeals uh, from the U.S. Courts of Appeals, uh, parties parties who have an interest in the outcome, 
parties who believe they have something to add to the court's thinking and reflection on the question file what are called amicus curiae briefs, that is, friend of the court briefs. And, um, and so, and when it's a high profile case, you sometimes get hundreds of these briefs from advocacy organizations or law professors or, you know, sometimes members of Congress, state's attorneys general, governors will fill, put all these briefs in. And there was a group of philosophers. It was Judith Jarvis Thompson. That's not an accident. She was the sort of philosopher that pioneered the abortion rights argument. Uh, mm-hmm. John Rawls, um, uh, Scan- Thomas Scanlon, um, Robert Nozick, um, Ronald Dworkin, and others, very famous political and moral philosophers, signed this brief. And the brief argued, and it was such a famous none brief. Of, none of whom was from Oregon, or right, none of whom were Oregon. Uh, exactly, none of whom were from Oregon. Saying we we are the most important political and moral philosophers living today in the anglophone world, and we want to tell you what we think about the right to assisted suicide, and we believe that there is a right to assisted suicide embedded and unstated and unenumerated, unwritten in the 14th Amendment that grows out of the right to freedom, the the right to self-determination, the right to privacy that the court adopted in in the abortion jurisprudence. And And this was such a famous intervention into the case, the New York Review of Books published their brief in the New York New York Review of Books. I believe people can Google it and read it for themselves. Oh, yeah, you can read it for yourself. And and it's amazing how it it says there's a straight line between the goods at issue and the right to abortion in Roe and Casey and the issues in this case. And the good of of being a self-determining, autonomous, free person who is free to write the final chapter of his story. Uh, to end his life in a way that is coherent with and consistent with his own judgment about the meaning of his life, his own originality, his own authenticity, because that good is so important, we have to read it into the 14th Amendment due process clause, even though on its face, all all the due process clause says is if the state is going to deprive you of life, liberty, or property, they have to give you meaningful procedural safeguards. But the argument is based on the concept of substantive due process. It's a legal doctrine. It's highly controversial that says some rights are so important that they have to be guaranteed by the uh, by the government. Otherwise, no no process would be would be adequate to protect against this right. The right itself has to be protected. The substance has to be protected, not just the process. And it's highly controversial area of jurisprudence. Uh, dating back to Dred Scott, it comes up in Dred Scott. It comes up in a case called Lochner v. New York, in which the court uh, invented a a right to contract, which is not in the Constitution, to override state labor laws. Uh, the, it comes back in Griswold versus Connecticut to override Connecticut laws about the use of contraception by married couples. It comes up in Roe. I mean, it basically is an, it authorizes judges and justices to read into the Constitution, unstated rights, uh, and that, that are that are can be vindicated against state action that the state can't uh, limit, and um, and it's obviously controversial because it gives the court the authority to to override the the actions of the political branches based on rights that are nowhere mentioned specifically in the Constitution, um, and and so that's controversial. But then there's a, it's also controversial because. Uh, it's an open question as to how, how do you discern such invisible rights? How do you, how do you, what are their limiting principles? And 
most importantly, how as a judge do you resist the temptation to invent rights that cohere with your own political preferences and morality under the auspices of interpretation? And so, and so, uh, but the philosophers thought this was so obvious that the good of self-determination and autonomy and authoring the end, the final chapter of one's story, which by the way is about as pure an articulation of expressive individualism as you could muster. Mm-hmm. The good of expressive individualism are about authoring the end of your own story as you see fit, coherent, coherent with your own internal uh, you know, understanding of what your destiny is. Um, that uh, they said it's obvious that this is in the Constitution and, and, and that Washington and New York are out of, out of line restraining people's freedom to obtain a prescription from a doctor and dispensed by a pharmacist to self-administer that and to kill themselves. Um, and, and the U.S. Supreme Court rejected that argument nine to nothing. Uh, you know, the major miscalculation by the, by the philosophers and the people who brought the suit, did they, were they shocked by that or was it? I think they were probably shocked. I think that they had a pretty healthy sense of their own importance as, as intellectuals and, and expositors <laughs> Uh, uh, the the good life and what it means and, and how it relates to constitutional law. Um, but no, they were completely, re- that view was completely rejected by a court that said, we look at the history, text, and tradition of the United States Constitution. And it, and, 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 and no, in, 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 our, in our evaluation, in no way is the right to assisted suicide uh, a longstanding good held dear by the American people as reflected by the Constitution. And uh, and we're not going to uh, we're not going to impose that on the country as as the court did in Roe v. Wade um, and Planned Parenthood versus Casey and and states are free to legislate as they wish on this question. The Constitution is silent, and if the state of Washington wants to legalize assisted suicide, they can do it. But we're not going to pr- preclude the state of Washington from forbidding it. And uh, Washington ultimately did legalize uh, assisted suicide by referendum after shortly after Oregon did. The state of New York has resisted that. The state legislature has not legalized assisted suicide, but there are about a dozen states and jurisdictions, including the District of Columbia, who have legalized assisted suicide following really almost word for word the law in Oregon. Well, speaking of the law of Oregon, I, there were several, there were many revelations in your book about how it's actually um, work, works in practice and, and the things that we don't know about how it works. And that was, that was to me was when you talked about procedural safeguards, the, your book makes the point that there are hardly any procedural safeguards. And I'd like to read what I wrote about it. Just, just to give the reader, the reader to clue the reader into what I found particularly significant. And it starts with the fact that we talked about procedural safeguards and also the, the matter of truth, you know, the person finding his or her own truth. There's a lot of deception involved in this. And also, well, I'll just read it. That under Oregon law, death certificates for those who take lethal doses of drugs prescribed by the doctors or assisting in the suicide, which itself is kind of a strange concept of assisting a suicide, uh, do not list drug overdoses. As the death certificates do not list drug overdose or suicide as a cause of death. They list whatever the underlying illness is. So even though the person has died from a drug overdose, that they're still listed as dying of cancer or ALS and so forth. And when I mentioned learning that fact to a friend of mine, she made the point that that may be because that life insurance policies don't pay out in terms of suicide. So there's a financial interest and there's a sort of insurance fraud. Yeah. With a wink and a nod from the state of Oregon, because it's a legal insurance fraud, in other words, which is strange. And that leads to another point in your book about, you talked about, about safeguards and you make the point in the book that, 
Two witnesses are required for the document about the person's choice of assisted suicide, but there are no controls on whoever those person could be. Right. So when it comes to money, they may have a financial interest in the person's demise, not just the money, but given the fact that the longer they're alive, dying is expensive and their inheritance is being eaten up. So they could say, well, it's just, and then the person would feel a sense of obligation to die so that they leave something behind for their heirs. And you say, most worrisome of all, and this is from you, most worrisome of all is that there's no requirement to assess voluntariness or competence at the time the patient ingests the lethal drug. And that's really alarming. Yeah, that's the worst thing, I think. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. So the vision of the person that the law of assisted suicide in Oregon and elsewhere projects is on the autonomous will, the person who is free and autonomous, exercising their freedom in an existential matter at the end of their life, authoring the end of their life's last chapter to avoid either pain or dependence or, or, or being a burden to others, or simply you know, not, not declining in a way that they regard themselves as undignified. Uh, the studies about among people in Oregon, um, again, as you point out, there's a whole lot we don't know about what goes on in Oregon. And so, as a lawyer and a person who's worked in, at the intersection of law and public policy, that's, I mean, we really don't have any idea what's going on. I mean, we have well, the audits. Some the point in the book that, that some of the data is destroyed after a certain point on purpose. That's part of yeah. the. And the state know. doesn't have a robust mechanism of information collection. The person who was uh, the Oregon official who was. Um, interviewed about this has said many times, like, look, we really don't have the resources or the mechanisms to actually collect uh, statistically valid information about what's going on here. People just report to us. We don't, we don't follow up. We don't, we don't validate any of the information that we receive. Um, and as, as you say, um, there's no obligation in the law at all to, for anyone to be present when the person ingests the lethal uh, medication there's no requirement to assess their competence at that point or their voluntariness at that point. Um, it's a it's a black box. And uh, and if you are a person who is autonomous and free and probably white and wealthy um, and um, you know and you and you're in, in rich, um, maybe that's okay. You know, maybe it's okay for you to have that freedom to 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 do as you wish in those in those respects. But that's not that doesn't describe most people who have suicidal ideation. Most people who have suicidal ideation are depressed, clinically depressed, mm-hmm. um, most with treatable depression. Um, many of them feel burdensome to other people. Many of them feeling the coercion, the internal coercion of their circumstances, or maybe the external coercion of their of their family who wishes for them to you know to to get things moving with their demise. And, um, or, from and the, or from the providers who keep saying, I remember reading an essay by a quadriplegic who said that he felt sort of this implicit messaging from, from residents and that when he went in for wound care, and they would say, well, you know, your quality of life is really pretty poor. You sure you want to go on this way? And he no. said, yes, I have a law practice and I'm doing very well. Thank you. I just want you to treat my wound, please. Right. And- exactly. Yeah. Or insurance companies that don't want to pay for <laughs> Uh, expensive treatments, but would rather be happy to pay for the much less expensive barbiturates to to take your own life. Um, and so, so the vision, the reality of the person who is seeking to end his or her life is not the is not the ubermensch who's seeking to 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 author the final chapter of his life story in a way that's coherent with his own originality. And more, even more so, if you th- if you take a step back further and you look at the population level. There are a lot of vulnerable communities, the poor, the disabled, the elderly, uh, those uh, members of discrete and insular minorities that are subject to historical discrimination. 
um, who are at risk anyway, who are all of a sudden at greater risk for fraud, abuse, duress, and mistake that, um, that system-wide, now we've created risks uh, for people that are, um, that, that are much, much more um, deadly. And as you said, in those jurisdictions that legalize assisted suicide, one thing that's been observed is an emphasis on palliative care and hospice declines. Um, the path of least resistance becomes writing a prescription for someone to take their own life. And, um, and so the reality of the law in assisted suicide is not responsive to the lived reality of vulnerability and mutual dependence and natural limits that are a direct result of our shared and individual lives as embodied beings. Well, that is very helpful. I'm, I'm glad we, we addressed the issue of, of assisted suicide because that's a big, a large part of your book and it's, it's very thought provoking. I'd like now to move to the matter of, well, one issue that was quite, in addition to the journalistic aspect of that, of the, of the assisted suicide section is you, early in the book, you discuss some of the, the, the beginnings of, well, you discuss the origins you call the genealogy of bio, bioethics in the United States. And you talk about some of the horrifying incidents and many of them are well known. So I won't dwell on the Tuskegee syphilis experiments as horrifying as it was, but one that I had not heard of, and I would think many listeners had never heard of was the experiments on near-term alive aborted babies that were conducted primarily, I guess, in Europe, but with American doctors and American funding. Could you talk about what was what they were doing, how it was revealed, and what the consequences were of those? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the birth of American public bioethics is in the late 60s and early 70s. And as you said, the Tuskegee experiments came to light in 73, the extraordinary abuses and exploitation of African-American sharecroppers directly by the federal government for 40 years. Uh, as well as uh, Henry Beecher's um, account of 22 unethical experiments undertaken at the America's most elite institutions, including uh, the federal government itself. And everybody, know, most people know about those two, two things. But the third kind of um, signal moment that gave rise to American public bioethics occurred again in 1973. A series of uh, articles in the Washington Post were published. Uh, and these articles described a debate happening at the National Institutes of Health, that is the premier uh, research funding body of the federal government, um, uh, about, about whether or not to fund research involving um, newborns who had just been aborted, that is, had just been aborted and were imminently dying, but were still alive outside of their mother's bodies. So they're newborns. We're not talking about in utero human beings. We're not talking about fetuses. We're talking about neonates. We're talking about babies hmm. outside of their mother's bodies. Uh, and researchers from the United States, which and this primarily occurred in Scandinavia, re American researchers would travel to Scandinavia and conduct a variety of experiments on these babies that shocked the conscience uh, of normal Americans. Okay, They would hmm. test drugs. They would test devices. They would decapitate these babies. They would they would keep them alive for, in some cases, for hours, it was reported, while they were still attached to their mother by their umbilical cord. They would inject them with diseases. They would do all kinds of things to these newborns who were dying. They were dying, to be sure, these were dying babies. Um, but, uh, but they were dying because they'd been aborted rather than they exactly were dying. Right. They were dying by design. They were dying because they'd just been aborted. And the way these abortions were performed... Um, uh, were different in, in, in Scandinavia than they were in the United States. In Scandinavia, a, a common method of abortion was basically just per, per, performing a C-section, right? Removing the intact living baby and just allowing it 
him or her to expire after being outside the body. Um, and, and so researchers thought that this was an enormously value, valuable source of subjects for experimentation because these were intact living babies. They weren't all, they weren't dismembered. They weren't, you know, burned with saline or whatever the mechanisms of abortion were in the United States at the time. And, and so they, and so they would travel and it was, and it was disputed as to whether or not the NIH was paying for this or not. There's some evidence that suggests that it was, but they were certainly in conversation about whether they should pay for it. And it turns out, uh, Eunice Shriver, uh, sister of the, the, uh, Ted Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy and John F. Kennedy, the sister uh, of, of those, uh, very famous Americans found out about this. Um, and her daughter, Maria Shriver, who later became the first lady of California and a very accomplished journalist in her own right, uh, found out about this. And she went to a, a local Catholic high school in the D.C. area, organized 200 students to, to basically go to NIH and protest about this because it was so shocking. The idea that these babies who were dying, their, their suffering uh, was being extended their, their, their in fact, and they were being exploited and, and ex- ex- instrumentalized in this way undignified and, and gruesome way. The, and I just want to interject to the, that Eunice Shriver had been the sister was, I guess she was the sister of Rosemary Kennedy who'd been lobotomized. Correct. Exactly and, right. and, exactly and she, right. she, and she devoted huge years of her, her own life to protecting the rights of the development developmentally disabled. So she was a very sort of, she was a heroine in her own right. She I sure say. Was. Deeply, deeply pro-life woman, her husband, Sergeant Shriver, they, they, they created the special Olympics um, they, they, the, uh, the disabled, especially intellectually disabled children had a very special place in, in their hearts. Um, and, and, uh, and, and a very inspirational uh, couple, Sergeant and Eunice Shriver. And, um, and they, uh, and so in any event, the, um, the NIH said, well, okay, we're not, we're not doing this. If we were doing it, we're not going to do it anymore. Um, and, and Ted Kennedy, who was, um, in the Senate at the time, uh, convened hearings um, on a variety of topics, including Tuskegee, including the Beecher experiments, uh, and with the aim of gathering information about um, uh, American public American public bioethics, and culminating in the passage of the first federal statute that related to American public bioethics. That's the National Research Act of 1974, and in the National Research Act, it um, it created a new national commission on bioethics, which reported directly to the uh, Department of Health and Human Services. And, and in fact, their recommendations would be binding on the Secretary of Health and Human Services, then called the Secretary of Health, Education and Welfare, um, uh, unless the, the secretary p- uh, published an explanation as to why he or she was not accepting their recommendations. And they put in place a moratorium on this kind of grotesque research involving uh, living um unborn children, uh, or, or recently aborted children. And, um, and that was the very beginning of American public bioethics. At this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with O. Carter Sneed about his book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. Well, getting, since we've established very helpfully just now the, the, the origins of American bioethics, I'd like now to move to an area that is another another shocking revelation of your book which is very valuable i was i mean i was underlining and just my eyes were my eyes were just wide open and my jaw was dropping at certain points when i was learning some of the things that how how regulated your 
assisted the re, assisted reproductive reproduction industry, which is what it is, an industry is, and you make that very clear in your field. And speaking of of early early life, you write about among among, among the well bef- before I say that you address the issues of mothers and gestational mothers and gamete donors and sperm donors. But you also say it is important to address another, yet another vulnerable independent population that is centrally involved in and affected by the lack of meaningful regulation of ART as such in America, namely the living human embryos who are conceived, cultured, screened, transferred, intentionally destroyed, donated to other patients, sold in batches, given to scientists for use in destruction research, or most often frozen indefinitely. And that's an astonishing passage, and it generated even more questions. So those would include, to me, transferred to whom and what becomes of them after that, who is tracking the embryos donated to other patients, and what sort of relationship does a child conceived in the end from that embryo have with those who were his or her biological parents, and what becomes a frozen embryo if a company involved in their creation goes bankrupt or otherwise ceases operations, or just in this weird... Yeah. scary scientific limbo. And, and you also say that there are probably a million frozen embryos. And can we even really know that with any certainty of the numbers? No, that's right. So so the the uh, when I worked for the President's Council on Bioethics, we did a report that came out in 2004 called Reproduction and Responsibility, the Regulation of New Biotechnologies. And it was about fundamentally about assisted reproductive technology, especially as it comes into contact with genomic interventions, genetic screening, genetic engineering, uh, and so forth. And uh, there was a study, that, a rigorous study that came out by the RAND Corporation to figure out how many frozen embryos there were in the United States, how many cryo-stored embryos there were, and what was, the, what was their fate. And, they, at that, and so this is 2004. I think the study was published in 2003. Uh, 500,000 17 years ago. Uh, so people project that it's probably that number is probably a million now, mm, um, or more. yeah, yeah, and so or more. Um, and these these embryos, interestingly, the way they are, there's no there's no legal regime that defines the legal status of the embryo, um, and and the embryo embryonic human being status varies from state to state. In Louisiana, for example, there is a at least in on the books a law that says. Uh, human em- human beings conceived by IVF in the embryonic stage of development, IVF embryos are should be treated as juridical persons. Now, mm-hmm. I, I've not met anyone. I've done some inquiries, but I've never met anybody who uh, works as lawyers in, Indi- in Louisiana that focuses on these questions who can tell me how that law, if at all, is enforced, how it relates to the practice of IVF in Louisiana. I just don't know the answer to that. But in other states... Um, oh, could I interject on the subject of Louisiana that in in their book Embryo by Robert P. George and Christopher Tollefson, mm-hmm. they start out with this incredibly moving, very illuminating tale of this little person, this little object. Noah. Noah. Yeah, Noah. And he and he and he is and this this and in the Hurricane Katrina, this this very perceptive and intelligent, quick thinking first responder thinks there's something important, and I guess it's a thermos or something, yeah. you know, some kind of lab laboratory container, he rescues what will become this young man Noah. And it's a very moving tale. Yeah, absolutely. And and so um so but there's no I mean so the 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 context, the legal context in which the moral and legal status of embryonic human beings comes up is primarily in 
custody disputes uh, in following divorces uh, between husbands, ex-husbands and ex-wives over the disposition of frozen embryos conceived during the husband and wife's marriage. And different courts have taken different positions on that question. No court has ever allowed a parent, one of the two parents of the embryo, to uh, provide for the gestation of that embryo over the objections of the other parent. That is, almost in almost every case, the, uh, the embryos have been destroyed or preserved indefinitely, not, not transferred to a uterus to move to the next developmental stages and ultimately to, be brought to term over the objections of the parent who wishes not to, uh, to have that happen. And, and they're, they're treated as property legally, right? Some courts treat them as property. Some courts say we don't want to, are, are a little bit nervous about using that word. I think they have a little bit of uh, anxiety about calling living embryonic human beings property. So they call them, they say, well, it's not property, but it's also not a person. It has some kind of intermediate moral status, but then they treat it like property, right? So they, I mean, it's, it's not... Um, Intermediate pro- intermediate status, special respect is owed, but it turns out not to be very special in practice because these embryos are either stored indefinitely or or, or destroyed. And and th- these living human beings, I mean, every human being begins his or her life as an embryo. And I mean, it's literally a whole living human organism um, that, if given the appropriate environment, as all living organisms need the appropriate environment to move themselves along the developmental trajectory that's appropriate to the species. Um, it's just another, it's just a, a normal, just it's a normal developmental stage for a human being. It's a human organism. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a part of a human being. It is a human being. Uh, when, you, when you say destroyed, are they treated as medical waste? Are they flushed away or Yeah, burned? they're basically poured down a sink or, or uh, destroyed in some way. Yep. yep, exactly. And, but the interesting thing about the RAND study was a lot of, and especially in the context of the embryonic stem cell debate, you'd have scientists saying, we've got all these embryos that are going to be destroyed anyway. Why can't all these spare embryos, why can't we give us the spare embryos so we can destroy them and use them for the sake of beneficial scientific research? Which, by the way, Gil Mylander, who's an extraordinary thinker in the area of bioethics, uh, who's a Lutheran uh, ethicist, um, retired from Valparaiso, taught at UVA, taught at Oberlin, was a member of the President's Council on Bioethics. He observes that that argument is the same argument made by the doctors in the Nuremberg trials. They said, look, we didn't put these anyway. He's not drawing a, an equivalence between you know, killing people in concentration camps and destroying frozen embryos. But he, he wants us to notice that the argument is structurally identical. We're saying, look, these people are going to or this thing is going to die anyway. I didn't choose that it's going to die. I'm simply trying to make its death the object of my work so that some benefit can come from it. By the way, that is literally the same argument the scientists made in front of Senator Kennedy, arguing about why they should be able to continue doing research on these uh, newborns who'd just been aborted, who are imminently dying. They're going to die anyway, so why can't I use them in my research? And the response to that that came from uh, OBGYN named Andre Helliger's famous uh, first director of the Kennedy Institute of Ethics at Georgetown, said just because someone is dying anyway doesn't give you the right to uh, exploit them further, to embrace their dying as your own. In fact, these babies died because of the interventions of these researchers. The embryos in embryonic stem cell research die because they're disaggregated by the embryonic stem cell researchers. So they are intentionally killing someone who, uh, on the grounds that they were going to die anyway. 
And if you apply that to other contexts, that was certainly an argument that was rejected in Nuremberg. It was an argument that Ted Kennedy rejected in Congress. It's an argument that was rejected in the context of the Tuskegee uh, exploitation. They said, look, these poor African-American sharecroppers were not going to get antibiotics anyway. Uh, so our not giving them to them was just letting nature take its course and uh, getting some benefit by studying the natural history of the disease untreated by antibiotics. And, and, and ART requires multiple, because you need a, you need a large, a large number of embryos because not all of them work, right? So that's why there's so many of them. That's as conventionally practiced in the United States, generally speaking, when a person goes in for IVF, the woman or the, if, if she is the gestational mother or merely the gamete provider, the egg provider, however you describe it, because what IVF does is fractured all of the different pieces of human reproduction into its constituent parts. The provision of gametes, egg and sperm, the cre- the conception of the embryo by laboratory technicians, the gestation of the embryo inside the the biological, the gestational mother or surrogate, and then the rearing of the child. All that's been fractured into its independent uh, component parts uh, by the advent of in vitro fertilization. Um, but uh, uh, but in the co- as conventionally practiced, they will create more embryos than they transfer. Although I should say. One, to my mind, positive development in the practice of IVF is the uh, increased incidence of single embryo transfer. And I think, uh, and that that is uh, not transferring multiple embryos per cycle and ultimately end up with multiple gestations, which have health problems, both for the unborn children, the the later born children and the mother herself. But also, I think that, um, uh, or I hope at least that there's a a, a similar increase in the um, in the uh, in, in in unstimulated cycles of IVF, where you really only create one embryo per cycle and transfer that one embryo, I think they're getting better and more efficient at it. But as conventionally practiced, the reason we end up with a hundred, you know, a million embryos in cryo storage is because, as you know, at least historically, they make a lot more embryos than they transfer. And then, what do you do with the embryos? And the Rand study showed something that surprised a lot of people: that the vast majority of these embryos are not destroyed and are not given to science uh, researchers. They are actually kept indefinitely in cryostorage. And people interviewed about that. Why Why would you keep these embryos indefinitely in cryostorage when it's clear you're not going to use them in your own future reproductive cycles? Um, the answer is, well, you know, we just don't feel right about destroying these embryos or giving them away. No, that's interesting. They have, they're, they're a little queasy about it. That's yeah, so about it. About it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny because even... Robert Edwards and uh, Steptoe and Edwards, the two British scientists who um, pioneered in vitro fertilization, who who were involved in the um, the conception of the first what they called test tube baby, Louise Brown, and who was born in 1978 in, in England. Uh, one of them said, kind of betrays their own thinking about it by saying, you know, I when Louise Brown was born, it was either Ste- I think it was Edwards, Edwards or Steptoe. One of the two said when they saw her as a newborn in the nursery, say, well, I, you know, I saw Louise Brown in the Petri dish. Yeah. She was beautiful then. And she's beautiful beautiful now. And that Mm. you can't help. I mean, being a human being, you're drawn to that recognition of, of the humanity of the unborn. And even, even at the embryonic stage of development. Well, it's interesting because I'm glad to hear that there are some technologies that are improving so that there won't be this, this incredible ethical problem. But as it stands now, you write in the book, I'll quote, whereas the American law of abortion responds to the complex crisis of unplanned pregnancy by conferring the simple and brute liberty to eliminate the nascent human life in utero, 
The American law of ART responds to the vulnerability and suffering of infertility by conferring the freedom to create new life by nearly any means necessary. So it, it, there are it, it, there are certain there's a dark side because we're we're, we're shown. I think that people think of IVF as well. It's just a wonderful benefit to to marry or marry any any person that wants to be a parent. But there are this there is this dark side that your book does does delineate. Yeah, and I try to make a delineation or a distinction between the vision of human flourishing that is assumed by the legal regime for assisted reproduction in the United States, which is this expressive individualism. If you were designing a law with expressive individualism in mind, it would look like our current legal landscape for ART. But what I argue in the book, though, is that parents who are, are individuals who desire nothing more than to be a parent and are suffering from infertility and feel betrayed by their bodies and, and, and go to see reproductive endocrinologists or IVF doctors, they're not going to do that to try to assert their unencumbered will. They're doing it because they're unbelievably vulnerable they're probably exhausted. They are sad. They're angry. And these are vulnerable people. These are not people who are, again, the autonomous Ubermenschen who are going to seek to make their blaze their path in the world through reproductive technology. But the law is designed with that Ubermenschen in mind because it provides absolutely no limits, uh, no limits that are designed to protect um, to protect the the, the women who uh, are the egg donors, the women who are the gestational surrogates, the babies who are born with the aid of these technologies, even very basic things like health and safety. Forget the moral questions. Basic health and safety are not protected uh, in our current landscape. We don't even know, we don't even have longitudinal studies that tell us what the consequences of these IVF uh, interventions are. There are CDC studies that associate IVF and other adjuncts like in, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which is very common in IVF, where you inject one sperm directly into an egg to, to, to promote fertilization. Uh, they associate it with autism. They associate it with birth defects. Certainly, multiple gestations, which are more common by orders of magnitude in IVF than they are in uh, normal human reproduction. Uh, yeah, sometimes it hits the headlines with the famous octomom. Right, I guess she exactly. had. Yeah. And, and that's not, and that's bad for the mother and the babies. And by the way, it is not solved by what is euphemistically described as fetal reduction, which is targeted abortion of of, uh, of fetuses in utero that uh, a, a, to try to reduce the number of children born. Turns out that intervention uh, doesn't actually reduce the incidence of low birth weight or prematurity. Or uh, it's it's simply a way of culling the number of babies that are going to be born. Yeah, and that you have several instances in the book of, of true true cases where a surrogate mother, I guess at least at least one incident, but there were several related incidents about sur- surrogate mothers and what what happens to them of if they're carrying a Down syndrome child that they're pressured to abort the baby, and and the, the other case was yeah they're carrying multiple babies. And one of them, the parents are insisting that you, we don't want multiple babies. You have, one of them has to be sacrificed. And the, the surrogate mother is arguing, well, I, I didn't sign up to have this baby aborted. I just, I signed up for very little money or no money. In many cases, there's idealistic women that want to help bring a baby to this, this childless couple. But she, but then she says, I didn't agree ahead of time to, to have a, a life sacrificed for the benefit of the other. It's, 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 your, your book is just full of fascinating cases of that, that, 
that I'd forgotten about or, or, you know, baby M and, and baby, baby Jane Doe and all it just, it's amazing how or baby M was a different situation, but there were, again, they're just these, these fascinating cases of that, that were in the news that one has forgotten about or didn't realize the implications of at the time. And it's really worth reading for those of us who lived through that time or, or, or young people that did not know about those cases. They're, they're really, you really dress them wonderfully and very, very movingly. Um, one of the one another question that is about uh, apropos of the the ethics of it and the money question is you write there is a growing market for gametes including nationwide advertising campaigns soliciting highly intelligent athletic and accomplished female college students to sell their ova sometimes for tens of thousands of dollars in compensation I'm surprised again that this is legal that that you're not you can't sell a kidney but you can sell your ova and that there doesn't seem to be any logic to what you're able to peddle. Yeah, it's it's very strange. Um, you can't sell, you know, the, under the uh, relevant statutory scheme, it's illegal to sell organs. But that doesn't. But you can sell your blood. You can sell your sperm. You can sell eggs. Um, you can sell embryos. Uh, and uh, now that that I didn't realize. I guess they're actually selling them. I guess selling. yeah. You said you said and you said yeah. You said in the book trading them. I didn't realize. I didn't think of that golden, as selling them. Golden batches. Yeah, they are. Um, there's a place in California where they where they will they will try to maximize the preferred traits, intelligence, and so on, uh, non medical traits uh, by by curating the conception of of embryos with egg and sperm, and then selling the embryos in batches. Well, uh, before we move on to the subject of abortion, I did want to mention this very chilling. Well, it's it's it, it's chilling to some, and maybe just rational to others. You quote in the book. Dr. Gerald Schotten of mm-hmm. the University of Pittsburgh. Could you talk about why you quoted him and what some people would, different reactions that you've had to, to people, to what people thought of that quote, or some just dismissed it, or some thought it yeah, was, yeah. was so, damning. So and- the, the, my, my chapter on assisted reproduction, uh, chapter four, begins with two quotes. Um, the a quote from Dr. Shatton, but also the, it begins with a quote from a man who, passed away in the past few years, Dr. Uh, professor John Robertson from the University of Texas. He was a law professor, but he was a, basically uh, a, a feature of um, a permanent fixture of, of the commissions, the bioethics advisory commissions at the federal level on fetal research, on assisted reproduction, on a whole wide variety of important topics relating to public bioethics. And he was also, and more importantly for our purposes, the long-time, long-serving chairman of the Ethics Committee of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, which is the most important professional society for practitioners of IVF, and it's also the most important lobbying body uh, at state, the state and federal level uh, for policies and against policies as well uh, that, that the society regards as interfering with the freedom of practitioners to, to practice IVF. And... Um, the landscape for assisted reproduction in the United States is basically a free-for-all. There is no meaningful oversight of the practice of assisted reproductive technology. It occurs within the context of the practice of medicine, which is primarily regulated uh, through licensure and certification of practitioners at the beginning of their practice. And once they're licensed and certified, the only mechanism of oversight is the malpractice tort law framework. I mean, there are boards of medicine that can discipline people and so on, and professional societies can admonish people and kick them out of their honorific organizations. Um, uh, But 
But for the most part, doctors are free to use their ingenuity and their creativity to practice medicine as long as they stay within the standard of care, which is defined by their field. Um, and that makes a lot of sense when you are uh, when you're thinking about what doctors are and what they do and the social capital that they rightly enjoy. But it, but the sense it makes a lot less sense when the pre, when the when the cure or the treatment of a particular ailment is the creation of a new human being. Um, and and you would and I would argue that regulation and oversight is more important in the circumstances where what the doctors are doing is creating a new human being and invo involving themselves with a highly vulnerable population of people who are seeking uh, the object of their desire, namely to become parents or to donate eggs or sperm or be a gestational surrogate. And also it affects living siblings. Wasn't there, haven't there been cases where one doctor surreptitiously used his own sperm to create, I think dozens of, yeah. of his own progeny. And, and, they, and they made the point that you could inadvertently, if this is on a large enough scale, you could inadvertently marry your, your half sister. Right. <laughs> and consanguinity, all kinds of problems. And, and so, and so because, and, and so because it's unregulated, there's a very weak consumer protection law at the federal level, which I described, which basically doesn't do anything. I mean, it, 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 it takes rec, it takes data in a very incomplete and shoddy way. And then, and then, and then, and then only reports some portion of it. Um, and there are no meaningful restrictions or prohibitions on anything. And so that, and so in that, in that space, we now have sex selection routinely practiced at IVF clinics. We have, um, is, is that right? That's, that's pretty sure. Well, we start to see that in demographics and some, well, some, I mean, we, I think the percentage of people born from IVF is so low that we haven't seen major demographic shifts in the way you have where abortion is the primary mode of sex selection in certain other, other parts of the mm. world, um, uh, Cuba, India, China, and elsewhere. Um, you actually see some disruptions in the normal sex ratios, which comes with a whole host of social pathologies as well, uh, mm -hmm. aside from being sort of the unjust discrimination against unborn little girls, uh, primarily. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, and so, but, but uh, in any event, the, um, uh, so this, this sort of wild west, which has been criticized by folks on the right and the left for basically being unregulated. But John Robertson, who was the ethics, the head of the ethics section of this most important lobbying body for the industry, says... Reproductive technologies are means to achieve or avoid the reproductive experiences that are central to personal conceptions of meaning and identity. Now, you couldn't come up with a better distillation of expressive individualism than that. The, the purpose, the human flourishing is about finding your truth and pursuing it. And he says that reproductive technologies are an essential means to realizing your own original truths. And then Jerry Shatton, who was a Scientist at the time from the University of Pittsburgh, heavily involved in reproductive uh, research. Uh, he was involved in, in the actually the fraud uh, from 2005 from South Korea. There was a man who claimed falsely, it turned out to, that he had um, cloned a human being at the embryonic stage of development. Turned out it was a fraud. It also turned out he paid his poor women and his own research assistants, didn't pay the research assistants, co coerced them into giving eggs, the female ones, into undergoing superovulation to, to, to produce hundreds and hundreds of embryos, uh, none of which were successfully cloned. Um, and Jerry Shatton was involved in that, but we didn't know it at the time. This is mm -hmm. 2002. We had him come in and we gave him six. And I was the general counsel of the, of the council. And I said, okay, Mr. Shatton, come and speak to us. We gave him a series of questions to think about for six weeks before he came to testify. And one of the questions is, what is the purpose 
of reproductive medicine? What are the goals of reproductive medicine, especially uh, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, uh, genetic screening of embryos uh, prior to transfer in the IVF context? And what he came up with after six weeks of reflection was this sentence, and it was very surprising to a lot of us. Reproductive medicine is helping prospective parents to realize their own dreams for a disease-free legacy. Now, both Robertson and Shatton, the one word that's missing from both of those quotes about the purposes of reproductive technologies is the word child or children. The child is invisible. The child is simply the product of the will of the parents who are pursuing their own self-invention, pursuing their own legacy, their own dreams. That's what what a, a, a sister reproduction is in the minds of Robertson and Shatton. And that is what's reflected in the absence of law. And that's not, I argue in the book, what parents suffering from infertility want or need. They don't want to assert their unencumbered will. They want protection for themselves. They want protection for the health and well-being of their children that they're trying to conceive through the aids of these techniques. And in some cases, if they were thinking rightly, they would want protection from themselves. They would want protection for their own temptation to do things and try things that could endanger their own health, or more importantly, the health of their children who are born with the aid of these technologies. Uh, a person, just take an obvious example, a person says, doctor, transfer as many embryos as you can to maximize the chance of having a live born baby. And if you do that, you end up with multiple gestations, which results in all kinds of health risks, both for the mother, but especially for the child, because prematurity rates skyrocket. And those are associated with a whole host of maladies that might affect that child for their, for his entire life. Well, IVF, it's interesting that Shotton referred to disease-free because that's not really the primary purpose of it's, it's producing a baby, not producing a baby that does not have cystic fibrosis. That's a whole nother issue, right? Why would he, why would he emphasize disease-free in particular? Yeah. He's talking about, I think what he had in that mind. That would be CRISPR, right? I mean, that would be, yeah, that would no, be a technology now. And modify the genes. But no, he was talking about using pre-implantation genetic diagnosis to pursue uh, a child who had a health profile that was preferred by the parents to, to mm-hmm. not just weed out children who have fatal anomalies, fatal abnormalities, but even late onset diseases, even diseases that are treatable, right? Diseases that are treated. You, mm-hmm. you, want, you want a healthy baby and we're going to screen out those embryonic human beings who have health predispositions. Uh, or let's just be clear, usually have a probability for a health predisposition because you don't know with certainty necessarily what some of these conditions are. Um, or, you know, if, or if you have a, a disease that's heritable in your family that is only heritable, uh, you know, uh, that's a sex-linked disease that only the males will have, hemophilia, something like that. So you only want to have female offspring, then you can exercise sex selection to screen out any male mm. offspring. And let's be very clear, what screening means in this context is conceiving an embryonic human being and discarding it, destroying it, because it fails to meet the test of those who have uh, uh, who have uh, sought the screening. And that what was so chilling about Iceland with this, we've cured Down syndrome and they've cured it by killing everyone that's got it. I mean, that's with right. the, 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 everybody who has it. That's exactly it. making sure no baby is born who has who has Down syndrome. And also the standards of what what's treatable and what's 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 a life-destroying condition in, in parts of Europe, right? Spina bifida is considered grounds for euthanasia, whereas in this country, you just accept the child and you you try to care for her, her 
the child as best you can, right? So yeah, no, yeah, there there are in fact as you as you mentioned in you in in Europe in the Netherlands when they do a sort of an algorithm or a calculus about whether or not to euthanize a child, okay, not a not an unborn child, but a child. Um, and let's just be clear. If what you care about is autonomy and self-determination, what are you doing euthanizing a child? The child didn't choose, uh, is not exercising his or her free will. It's it's a euthanasia in the name of a, a particular version of compassion, right? It's not right, given the quality of life this child will have, to allow this child to live or the disabled person to live. And in their calculus, a, a non-lethal disability is in some ways worse than a lethal one because you live longer with the with the disability and therefore your your measure of suffering is greater. Well, apropos of, of the the idea of, of compassion, and I'd like to turn now to the Supreme Court because Roe v. Wade was, in a way, the, its proponents believed it was compassionate to protect the woman and, and to let her have her own again expressive individualistic. You talk about future direction, future directed goals, and I. I wanted to, to say in your book, you do a masterly job of rendering clear from the standpoint of sound legal reasoning that Harry Blackman's work was remarkably shoddy and slapdash. I'm, 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 not, I'm putting words in your mouth there, but it just seems no, that that's you... I say, you make, yeah, that's, that's definitely a good summary. Yeah, yeah. Because I'll quote you, I'll quote you because you say it better, obviously, than I ever could, but you say, when the case arrived at the U.S. Supreme Court, there were no findings of fact on which the justices could rely Every factual premise of the opinion of Roe v. Wade, historical, scientific, medical, I'm sorry, historical, scientific, medical, or sociological, was a product of the justice's own private reflections, untested for reliability or accuracy by the adversarial process. And that's a pretty damning indictment of the law that's held up as sacrosanct and so well argued that it can't possibly be questioned. And, and many people, even, even Ginsburg, believed it was not a particularly strong legal case, right? No, no one, no one, and we're in a moment in our in our political culture, and uh, probably also our legal culture, where intellectual honesty is not is is not practiced widely. Uh, but right after Roe v. Wade came out, there was a series of abortion rights supporting uh, scholars and and advocates and lawyers who were kind of blown away by how terrible the opinion was, by how badly reasoned it was, by how completely disconnected from the Constitution or the law or the tradition of the United States. Well, it was just basically a complete fiat, right? It was just the idea that we, seven of us on the Supreme Court, think that abortion is good as a policy matter, and so we're going to read it into the Constitution, right? I mean, that's uh, it was it's a, it was shocking. I mean, as you say, Justice Ginsburg at the time, uh, you know, in an interview said she thought that it was kind of an overreach. Uh, John Hart Ely, very famous law professor, in a, in a in an article called "The Wages of Crying Wolf." Uh, said that Roe v. Wade doesn't even pretend to be constitutional law. It's just politics. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Lawrence Tribe, who uh, now nowadays, it's hard to find someone who is a person who supports abortion rights, who has the freedom to be that intellectually honest. Because as you say, it's a no holds barred battle to keep it on the books. Um, But from its very inception, Roe v. Wade was a uh, an act of judicial arrogation of power, not connected in really any intelligible way to the heck t- tradition t- text or, or history of the U.S. Constitution or American legal system. Um, it was a kind of time period in which justices felt freer to sort of invent things and 
and to do politics under the auspices of judicial interpretation. And I think to my mind, you know, whether a person is pro-choice or pro-life, Roe v. Wade is one of the worst decisions uh, of all time in the modern constitutional era because it's such a lawless and intellectually indefensible, and as you say, shoddy piece of work. I mean, think about this for a minute. The, the opinion says, and as you say, because the procedural posture of the case, that is, the case came to the Supreme Court as a disposition from a three-judge trial court in which they didn't have any evidence at all. They didn't take any testimony. They just said, you know, we think Texas's law banning abortion, except in the case where the woman's life is at issue, um, violates the Ninth Amendment which is a kind of catch-all phrase that says that, you know, the enumeration of the rights in the cons, I'm paraphrasing, but the enumeration of specific rights here does not disparage other rights held by the people. You know, for decades, people thought that that didn't know what that amendment meant. They thought it was kind of an inchoate, uh, inert part of the constitution. And it comes up in a dramatic way in 1965 in a, in a concurring opinion by Justice Goldberg in the Griswold versus Connecticut case in which he, he, he sort of tries to read into that very vague language, a right to privacy that includes the right to use contraceptives by married couples. Well, the, the trial court in Texas said, okay, you know, you guys are challenging the Texas law. We think that the, the law probably violates the ninth amendment. And so it's unconstitutional, but we're not going to strike the Texas criminal law down because of a principle called abstention, uh, where federal courts won't interfere with state criminal laws. And we're, we're going to say it's constitutional, but we're not going to do anything about it. And then it was, and then went up to the Supreme Court. And then Justice Blackmun in a seven to two decision says, okay, um, it's not the ninth amendment that makes uh, restrictions on abortion unconstitutional. It's the 14th amendment mm. and the 14th amendment due process clause, which we've already talked about, which, de- which deprives, which says the state may not deprive a person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law entails certain kinds of substantive unwritten goods, uh, including privacy, which we've already talked about in terms of marital intimacy, rearing of children, sexual intimacy among spouses. And we think if that's true, if that's a zone of privacy, the zone of privacy also extends in the right to terminate a pregnancy, to reject the parental relationship. Uh, with an unborn child, which is not ever referred to as an unborn child, but referred to as potential life. Mm-hmm. And then Blackman's, and so, and, and Blackman's just making this up. He just basically says, we think the form, because again, if you take a step back, what he's saying is a passage from the 14th Amendment, which is a procedural protection ratified in 1868 to remedy the injustices of slavery, um, ratified at a moment when abortion was illegal in every state in the country. Uh, n- nearly every state in the country was affirmatively illegal. And one month after the state of Ohio ratified the 14th Amendment, they banned abortion from conception on the grounds that it was child murder. So not a single person in 1868, either who voted for this uh, 14th Amendment to ratify it or who heard about it, nobody thought it had anything to do with abortion. The states felt free to ban abortion, uh, and they did. They banned abortion almost everywhere. And to say to, to say that that language means that no state can forbid or regulate abortion in a meaningful way is to indulge in a form of constitutional interpretation that is basically unlimited and unbounded. It is simply importing one's policy judgments into, uh, into the, between the lines uh, of text that is merely a procedural guarantee that has no historical connection to abortion at all. And he says, okay, so the 14th Amendment says the states can't forbid abortion 
Uh, and, and it's clear that the word person in the 14th Amendment doesn't refer to an unborn child because in the four or five other places where the word person is used, it's clearly meant postnatally, which is not a very robust form of interpretation of a term in a, in a legal document, I have to say. Hmm. And then he says, um, he goes through all this, this medical history, the sociological history that uh, he borrows from a law review article written by the general counsel of the National Abortion Rights Action League, um, <laughs> uh, a man named Cyril Means, which was completely discredited by honest historians at the time. It just completely made up the idea that abortion at common law, that is, you know, at the time of the founding and before that in England was widely practiced and widely available. It's just simply false, simply made up. And then, and then in the middle of the 19th century was banned uh, in America only because doctors wanted to protect their professional turf against midwives, had nothing to do with unborn children. Again, utterly false, has been discredited by uh, historians um, like Joseph Delapena, has been discredited by uh, philosopher John Keown at Georgetown, been discredited by political uh, theorist at, um, at the, the University of Missouri. Um, uh, it's, it's just completely completely and utterly debunked, but he relied on it and, and he was free to do so because there was no trial record that established what the historical context was. Um, anyway. well, I was just going to say, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that, that, so Blackman starts out with this very flimsy, contrived view of privacy. And then over the years, the Supreme Court, perhaps realizing that that was kind of uh, inept or, or just not, not, not supportable over the sustainable over the long term, then it became autonomy slash liberty. And then, because I, I know that you have to go pretty soon, so I'm just going to yeah, move please. ahead to, to, but to say that then we have Ginsburg, who I, to some extent does exactly the same thing that, that Blackman does, right? She comes up with this principle of equality that, 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 that abortion puts women on the same plane as men. And that's, that, that, that is now the, the justification. But I wondered if any female commentators did not at the time thought, this is this is not make. I don't feel empowered by Ginsburg's argument in 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 the abortion issue. I believe that I'm, she's making me complicit in the evil that is abortion. That she's drag she's dragging all women to this argument in an evil and and committing basically on their behalf. And she's saying that, that this is for your, this is for all of us. And and you make the point that it's all again. It's the future directed. It's it's what. It, the only the only virtue the only person that matters is is the woman and you even talk about in the briefly in the book about how men are completely sidelined in this and marginalizing them and bring and taking them out and or actually absolving the men of econ, any economic duty to support the woman who is in, in trouble as they used to say and that 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 actually disadvantages women on the economic playing field yeah no that's exactly right and and um, I have a colleague at Notre Dame named Jess Keating. Uh, we, we run a program at the DeNicholas Center for Ethics and Culture called the VITA Institute, which is an intellectual formation program for leaders of the pro-life movement from around the world. And this summer, we usually do it on campus at Notre Dame, or we do little smaller versions uh, on the road. But um, one of we did it online this, this, uh, this past summer because of COVID. And if you go to our website, ethicscenter.nd.edu, and you can look at the VITA Institute, you can watch an extraordinary lecture by my colleague, Jessica Keating who uh, talks about the history of feminism and the right to abortion and how there is a real critical mass of brilliant feminists who saw abortion, including the original suffragettes and even before them, Susan B. Anthony and others, who saw abortion as a tool of the patriarchy, as a way 
and I think I'm paraphrasing, but it's a very arresting phrase to, to, to use a woman, get her pregnant, to vacuum her out and then use her again. Like that, it's an extraordinarily grotesque and upsetting formulation, but was understood rightly as abortion was the best friend of the patriarchy in the sense that it would allow men to use women to make women behave the way men behave in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the terms of their sexual licentiousness and, and would, would basically create, and as you say, create a license for men to simply walk away. If a woman, and the jurisprudence reinforces that, if a woman decides to get an abortion or not to get an abortion, it's her choice. And how, and, and what grounds does a man have any obligation at all? And as the, the anthropology of abortion jurisprudence atomizes the woman, isolates her in her, in her, this sort of flattened freedom to, to, to eliminate the burden of her unborn child and, ex, and absolves not just the father, but everybody, right? It's her choice. Her body, her choice, you know, leave her to her own devices. It's an atomized clash of, of interests between the unborn child who is subpersonal in the abortion jurisprudence of the United States and the woman who is a person to vindicate her, in Ginsburg's words, sort of co-equal freedom in the economic and social life of the nation. She has to be free to eliminate this burden so that she can both express herself sexually in the way that men can and live her originality in the economic and social context, the way men do, and so there's not, and it, and it rejects entirely the parental relationship. It dissolves the parental relationship to two atomized wills, well, one atomized will and one sort of um, uh, dependent um, human being that that has no will but just you know wishes you know is, is trying to survive, um, and uh, and it's quite it's quite arresting. But as you say. The history of the jurisprudence of abortion, and I, my friend Justin Dyer, who's a political science professor at, at the University of Missouri, does an amazing job of this in his own work, exposing the historical flaws um, and showing the connection between the reasoning in Dred Scott and the reasoning in Roe v. Wade and the way slavery was treated and the way that abortion is treated. It's a really interesting scholar, Justin Dyer. Um, you know, is, it, it, is it Bayer with a B or Bayer, Bayer with a B? D-Y-E-R. D-Y-E-R. Uh, E.R. He has a, an extraordinary book about abortion. D uh, is in dog. Uh, yeah, D is in dog. D Y R. Exactly. Ju- Justin Dyer. He has a book on abortion and slavery in the American Constitution, published several years ago. Really, really good, interesting book. Short book, quick read. Really powerful. Um, and um, the um, uh, and what it shows is that you know abortion is a abortion jurisprudence is basically a conclusion in search of a justification. Starts out as privacy, moves to liberty, moves to equality, uh, starts out in the 14th Amendment, you know, uh, and pretty much stays there. But before that was in the Ninth Amendment. I mean, people have been struggling to justify this outcome that they wish to have. And abortion, the Roe v. Wade and the defense of Roe and Casey has deformed our politics. It's corrupted our politics. It's corrupted the practice of medicine. It's corrupted constitutional law. Uh, it basically leaves us in a place where... Um, you know, you can't even think clearly about politics anymore because if this is important to you, if you if you abortion rights is the most important thing to you, if, or if uh, defending unborn human life is the most important thing to you, um, you don't have a lot of discretion about you know who you can vote for in a presidential election, who you can vote for for the Senate. Um, it's a mess, and uh, and it all begins with the Supreme Court taking onto itself this authority. And one one more point about the jurisprudence. It's amazing what Blackman says. It's first of all unbelievable and indefensible to say the Fourteenth Amendment implicitly forbids the state from re- regulating abortion. 
But he goes further than that. He says the 14th Amendment, rightly understood, requires a trimester framework of regulation where in the first trimester of pregnancy, the state can't uh, restrict abortion at all. In the second trimester of pregnancy, the state uh, can only legislate in the name of promoting a woman's health. And then in the third trimester, the state can regulate abortion, but but must make exceptions for the woman's life or health broadly defined to encompass any aspect of her well-being, including economic well-being. Uh, that's a, that looks like a statute, right? That doesn't look like mm. uh, an interpretation of the 14th Amendment. And then it, it gets a little better in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, but still not much, where the court says, okay, the 14th Amendment forbids the state from really regulating definitively abortion prior to viability, but after viability, they can regulate abortion subject to all the exceptions that are announced in Roe and its companion case, Doe v. Bolton. So, I mean, it is just it's just raw political power and because it gives an essentially an absolute victory to one side of the culture war on this, uh, it's defended, you know, uh, it's defended entirely uh, at every level of government. Um, and then you see we just finished a round of uh, Supreme Court confirmation hearings involving my dear friend of 15 years, Amy Coney Barrett. And it was 100 percent clear that uh, that um, that abortion was very much on the minds of those who, uh, who really couldn't abide her replacing Uh, abortion rights icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, you make a point in the book about tying the hands of the states about personhood, that they can't define personhood. They're allowed to do some, the states are allowed to do this, but they're not allowed to do that. And when it comes to personhood in a very, as you say, one-sided view of what the states are allowed to do, according to the Supreme Court. Yeah, Um, that's right. In fact, and, and I would put it this way, I would say that what Justice Kennedy says in, in, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and this is his, it reflect, his sort of understanding of the core holding of Roe v. Wade, is that every person, every woman who is pregnant has to have the freedom to define for herself the meaning of life, the beginning of life, and her own spiritual imperatives without interference from the state, which means two things. One is it's a kind of anthem to expressive individualism, that the core of freedom is defining your own, by your own lights, by your own interior judgment, what life is and what life is for and what your life is for and what the meaning of the life carry, the, of the human being you're carrying inside you means. And secondly, it means that the state is forbidden from adopting one vision of human life, which consigns forever the unborn child to a subpersonal legal status. Mm. Uh, and that's, a, that's quite a thing. Yeah, I think that Scalia famously parodied it. He almost, he, well, he didn't actually sing it, but he basically said, oh, sweet mystery of life, at last I found you in Kennedy's kind of saccharine passage that Scalia skewered it, didn't he? That he's he he made fun of it. He skewered his grand eloquence there. And <laughs> a, funny th- a funny thing happened, though, uh, with Anthony Kennedy, because in the Gonzalez versus Carhartt, which is the case, the five to four decision in which he wrote the majority opinion upholding the constitutionality of the federal partial birth abortion ban. He was grandiloquent and flowery again, but this time talking about the, the love of a mother and a child is the paradigmatic love that moves all of society. Um, it, because he was moved by a series of letters that had been written by women who had regretted their abortions and felt exploited and, 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 and wished that there had been more, um, pedagogical laws in place to educate people about what abortion really was an mm-hmm. example of which being the partial birth abortion ban. And he was very moved by that and wrote a very, what he, I'm sure he thought was a very eloquent, but turned, I think very saccharine and flowery passage about the mother of the love of mother and child. 
And that just triggered Justice Ginsburg in her dissent, uh, savaged him just in the same way Scalia did uh, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Yeah, she didn't like the word mother. Was that in that case? Was it the, or it was Thomas that she didn't like the word? She she just pounced on the word mother. That oh, yeah, not, she's not a mother. Word, she doesn't like the word baby. Doesn't like the word mother. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's right. It was Kennedy with baby and Thomas with mother. I believe in your yeah. book, but exactly. But I, I I wanted just 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 to conclude because I I'm I know that you have to go. But um, apropos of getting back to the one of the themes of your book, expressive individualism. What do you make of the appointment of Ezekiel Emanuel to Biden's COVID task force? Because he's kind of the epitome of that with his famous essay about I want to die at, I don't remember, the, the, I didn't get the title right, but it basically the gist was, I want to die at 75 because it, life is meaningless. You're not, you're not really a capable, cognizant human being after the age of 75. Yeah. I heard you make a, a funny quote on, on another podcast. You said, well, then why are you working for administration of the man who's about to turn 78? Right, exactly. Well, so <laughs> Dr. Emanuel is a, is a complicated figure, it seems to me. He's he, he's been a, again a fixture of American public bioethics and health policy for decades and decades. He wrote a really interesting book in 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 nineteen in, I think published in nineteen ninety eight. Um, I think I'm par- I can't remember the full title. It's like something bioethics and the ends of life, medical ethics and the ends of life, which is I think was probably his dissertation. And he talks about he he embraces a kind of communitarian vision of of how to structure American public bioethics. And it really, it's hard to square with, you know, the kind of utilitarianism that he embraces in this uh, in this essay that you're referring to. I mean, he seems like a complicated, and he's obviously very smart and, and accomplished, but, but, um, but yeah, it's a very, it's kind of crassly utilitarian piece about, you know, about the, the overall, you know, maximizing utility and, and uh, for, for the, the greatest, you know, greatest good for the greatest number and preserving scarce resources and, and kind of implying, you know, you could say, well, he's just talking about himself. If that's true, then why are you publishing it in the Atlantic? If you're not, you're a a figure that public policymakers take seriously. Obviously you're hoping that this is the kind of concept that gets traction in, in public policy. And where there certainly are governments around the world that ration healthcare and ration access to life sustaining uh, interventions, uh, in some cases on the basis of age and some cases on the basis of quality of life. And, um, and again, my, my view is that, um, if your vision of the person is the, is, is defined by the goods of expressive individualism, the capacity to think and act and construct your open future and to pursue it, uh, then yeah, you could imagine ruling out a lot of folks who are cognitively impaired, maybe because of dementia, maybe because they've never had, uh, agency, never had good cognitive functioning, or maybe because they're children or, 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 or the elderly, um, they're, they're, they're ruled out. Their, their lives are not, not worth living and public policy shouldn't be oriented towards preserving and ministering to their needs. That to me is a kind of, uh, is a kind of a clear illustration of the risks of a false and faulty anthropology. Uh, human beings are vulnerable. Human beings are mutually dependent. Human beings, de- uh, 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 flourish within networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving and, and what we're here to do and learn to be are independent practical reasoners who make the good of others our own good. And there are plenty of people who only participate in these networks of ca- uncalculated giving and graceful receiving as the passive recipients of unconditional love. And that's okay. That's okay. That's a perfect form of human flourishing to be the passive recipient of the love of others. People who will never be able to formulate their own thoughts or, pur- or pursue their own dreams they're still people. 
and they're still members of the human family. And I think that Dr. Emmanuel misses that and his, because he's operating according to an incomplete and false anthropology, and he would do well to embrace a more robust conception of the circle of humanity and the boundaries of the moral and legal community. That's very eloquent. I, re- I would just close on a similar thought that I was I used to work in a medical library and there was a, I think it was the Hastings report, but there was a quote from a wife, the husband wanted to die, who felt he was a burden to her. And she said, her reaction was, don't you love me enough to let me take care of you? That she felt that she was being deprived of, of her role and her eagerness to care for him. I thought that was very moving. And that's probably true of many men, many men in many marriages that they don't want to, that they're not strong anymore for their wives. And no, that's right. That's exactly right. And, um, and being vulnerable and allowing another person to love you and to care for you as part of being human. Well, thank you very much, Carter. I've taken up a lot of your time. And one more brief question. I know you have to go. The quote, the traditional final question on the New Books Network is what are you working on now? That's a great question. I, um, I've got a couple things in the hopper. Um, I'm really interested in, um, in, uh, in organoids, in these, in these, 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 these entities that are created using gene editing, um, and particularly cerebral organoids. That is, the idea of creating a, a brain a disem, uh, that is not attached to a body using gene editing and that is capable of consciousness. I'm really interested in the moral and legal status of what a, of of that kind of an organoid is. Um, I'm I'm working on, in the legal context, uh, a piece uh, with a research assistant of mine on stare decisis. That is the the common law principle that uh, before a court overrules a wrongly decided prior precedent that it should uh, evaluate, doesn't have to, but should evaluate the the sort of practical consequences of doing so, the disruptive societal and doctrinal consequences of doing so. Obviously, That'll be fun to watch as Amy Coney Barrett spars with John Roberts on such issues in coming years. Your work will be very helpful. That's exactly what I had in mind. And then the last thing I'm working on is the idea of, of the killing of innocence in American public bioethics. That is, when, if ever, in our law and public policy, is, is it justified uh, or excused to kill an innocent human being for the sake of some other purpose? And, and, um, and the reason I, I'm focusing on that is because in my, in my book that we've just been discussing, I talk about if you were to take seriously the, 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 the lived reality of embodiment and the personhood of the unborn child, then you would reframe the question of abortion, not as an atomized individual woman seeking to expel some unwanted parasite or intruder, um, but rather a, a vital conflict between a mother and her child, an innocent child who is not an unjust aggressor, but rather a, a, a burden to that woman. Uh, whether her life is at risk or health is at risk or her future is at risk, how would we, using the, the categories of American law that are already exist for homicide, self-defense, justification, excuse, how would we resolve that conflict? And that's something that I find. And there are also other conflicts in American public bioethics that involve the proposed killing of innocents that I think are worth exploring as well. Well, we'll look forward to that. And I very much hope you'll let us know when when 
when those what those works are out and available. And again, I want to I want to urge people to find your your other discussions of your magnificent book, what it means to be human: the case for the body in public ethics, the case for the body in public bioethics. It's available now for purchase, and it also, as I say, there are many. You give many lectures about it and podcast interviews with many more to come. I'm sure because the book is getting a lot of attention. So people just Google your name and the name of the book, and they'll find a lot of very useful, thought-provoking, moving material. So thank you very much, and thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. <music>